This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Galina Rimarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Michael Sekeres about his new book, When Blood Breaks Down, Life Lessons from Leukemia. A leading cancer specialist tells the compelling stories of three adults, leukemia patients, and their treatments, the disease itself, and the drugs developed to treat it. When you are told that you have leukemia, your world stops. Your brain can't function. You are asked to make decisions about treatment almost immediately, when you are not in your right mind. And yet you pull yourself together and start asking questions. Beside you is your doctor, whose job is it it is to solve the awful puzzle of bone marrow gone wrong. The two of you are in it together. In When Blood Breaks Down, Mikhail Sekeres, a lady cancer specialist, takes readers on the journey that patient and doctor travel together. Well, Mikhail, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the global pandemic during the last year, I was just wondering whether you could reflect on how has this influenced you and your work and also the main takeaways that you've gathered gathered from this experience. Oh, my word. Well, what a year it's been for all of us, right? Uh, Mm. To think about over a year ago, uh, the last time I ever traveled uh, internationally um, was actually to a meeting in Israel at the end of February, beginning of March, and I almost didn't make it home. I think we were one of the last flights uh, to make it back into North America. Um, it, it's been a heck of a year in uh, resetting a lot of uh, how we think about medicine and healthcare and our own values. Um, and some of it has been uh, just absolutely tragic, uh, has highlighted uh, things like unconscious bias, disparities in healthcare. Um, and the importance of uh, communication at a national level. Uh, And there have also been some silver linings, as I think a lot of us have gotten closer to our family. Um, I know in my own household, uh, we went through periods of time when my teenagers would actually linger after dinner because it was the only face-to-face human contact they had during the day, and we got closer as a family. Uh, in 
what I do for a specialty, which is uh, a focus on hematology and oncology, and specifically, I specialize in leukemia. Um, it's been a, a very uh, anxiety-provoking year in thinking about the safety of my patients, as we've learned in real time what their risks are for being exposed to COVID-19. Um, and uh, as we've had vaccines emerge, whether or not those vaccines would actually be effective for my patients. So boy, in some, I think I'm back to what I started with. It's been a heck of a year on a lot of different levels. Yes, for sure. And now's the time to really reflect, isn't it? It really is. It really is. As, as you know, we feel as if we're in part emerging from this and yet, um, you know, my patients who have uh, severely compromised immune systems don't have that luxury and still have to wear masks and practice social distancing because we just don't know yet whether the vaccines will be effective with them. So, yeah, it's also a, 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 a time of reflection. So, as you already mentioned, uh, you're a practitioner, you're a cancer practitioner. So, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got started? Sure. Well, I, um, you know, in the United States, uh, I come from the biggest little state in the union, Rhode Island. We're the tiniest state in the United States. Uh, I went to met to college and medical school in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and then completed my residency and fellowship in hematology oncology in Boston. Um, I'm actually the son of a newspaper reporter. Uh, my dad worked for the Providence Journal Bulletin in Rhode Island. And I always felt as if writing was our family business. Uh, I think those of us who are parents, you know, we start out with just delighting in having children and watching them grow. And then we reach a certain point where we think, gee, we've got to actually give them a skill so they won't live in our basements for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. and I feel like our skill uh, that was imparted to, to us, to my brother and me from, from our parents was writing. Uh, and I'll tell you, from the moment I met my first patient during my training, I've been fascinated with the interaction that occurs between that person and his or her healthcare provider. Um, from the very moment a person is given a, a diagnosis with a medical condition, and the relationship that forms between them over time. Um, I've even based some of my research on that communication that occurs between uh, patient and doctor. And um, I'm the only doctor in my family. So I was taught at a very early stage of my training uh, to communicate with using plain language uh, with a patient or with uh, anybody connected to that patient and to not use complicated medical terminology as a shield. Were there anybody who inspired you to uh, really go into science and medicine? That's a great question. Um, you know, when we write essays to get into medical school, there's a lot of reflection on what, what was the motivator for getting into medicine. And certainly I've had family members who've um, had significant illnesses. Um, I've actually had two family members who've had leukemia. And I think that probably on a conscious or subconscious level, that was the motivator uh, for me to get involved in, in medicine. But I think the real driver, um, Galena, and this may not be what everyone says, is that I've always felt at a, at a core level that medicine is based on storytelling. And 
my parents, my dad in particular, who was a reporter, was the ultimate raconteur, uh, the ultimate in storytelling. And if you think about it, in medicine, a patient tells a doctor or a nurse the story of his or her illness. Um, I was at home feeling um, fairly well and then climbed the stairs and got short of breath and noticed that every time I went out for a walk with my wife, I would get short of breath, particularly when we were climbing a hill, right? That's the story of illness. The doctor or nurse then passes that story on to each other colleagues and trainees as they tell the story of how to eliminate disease. So we have a very structured way of presenting um, a nurse practitioner or a, a medical student or resident may say to me, a 72-year-old man was in his usual state of health uh, when he noticed that he was getting short of breath when climbing stairs and going out for walks with his wife. He went to his primary care physician um, with those complaints, and that physician drew some blood counts and found that they were desperately abnormal, and that patient was referred to the emergency room. So that's the story from a medical student or trainee to me, to what happened leading up to the point that I'm meeting that patient. I'll then tell a story to, um, to my trainees, to my residents, about how we're going to evaluate the cause of those abnormal blood counts that led to that man being short of breath. Um, and say, let's perform a bone marrow biopsy, let's do some specialized tests on it, and find out what could be causing the abnormal blood counts. And, you know, you started this by asking me about COVID-19, and, and I'll tell you, you know, as with COVID-19, the tale of leukemia is one of a terrible invader, um, something that I call a malignant golem, that ignores the niceties of health and corrupting the body's normal machinery to wreak havoc. Um, and like COVID-19, it's a tale of fantastic discoveries about the basis of that golem, which leads to the drugs that eventually we hope will be its undoing. So, you know, my inspiration, I wish I could cite one person who influenced me when I was a child, one doctor in my life um, that convinced me I wanted to be a doctor. But as I said, I was the only doctor in my family. There wasn't an adult who was that inspiration my inspiration lie in the tales of the people diagnosed with terrible diseases like COVID-19 or with cancer who are forced to make impossible choices about treatments that will affect their health and the fabric of their families and how they do this with such grace and dignity. So I was drawn to medicine by the stories and eventually the chance to write one about these remarkable people. Oh, that's a really great motivator for any young researchers <laughs> who are considering a, a career in medicine. So um, this uh, really human-centric approach to disease that you take is, is actually quite opposite to how many people and even practitioners view the diseases. So how did this uh, passion to put patient first culminate in your book? <laughs> You know, I've been on admission committees for medical schools in the past, and you see candidate after candidate who was this hardcore science major, majoring in you know biology and chemistry, or in biochemistry, or in the neurologic basis for diseases. And um, we really screen in those admissions committee for people who are very, very good at science. Um, the the dirty little truth, though, is that probably the most important aspect of being a good doctor or being a good nurse is in being a good communicator and being a good storyteller. And I've always felt that we should be screening for English majors. 
uh, and mm-hmm. for people who have real experience in being able to read something or hear a story and be able to organize it logically in his or her mind and then look for patterns. Um, just like we, we would do with reading a good novel and look for for um, patterns in how the author's trying to communicate ideas or influences on that story uh, given the period at which a, a novel was written, uh, right? That's how I was, I was taught to to interpret literature. So I've always thought that, that, that really we should be looking for more English majors uh, in, uh, in medical school, but we're, we're not quite there yet. Um, and so people are taught in medical school how to communicate with patients. Isn't that interesting? We, we recruit people who are so very good at science and so smart, um, but don't really vet them as well as we should for how they communicate. And so we're forced to teach them how to communicate when they're in medical school. And I've had had a lot of debates with a, a very good friend of mine, a, a guy named Tim Gilligan, who's a doctor and uh, also has a degree in journalism and is a master communicator. He actually goes around the, the U.S. teaching doctors how to communicate with patients. And we've gone round and round on this point because he's always talked about how, how important it is and really wonderful that we have such good communications courses in medical school so that we're training people to be better communicators with patients. I've always felt as if sometimes those courses in communication actually do the opposite of what we're intending. And let me give you an example. In medical school, we might be taught, uh, let's say we're at home and we're walking down the street from our house and and we see one of our neighbors come down the steps of her house and, and she all of a sudden trips and falls to the ground. When we're in medical school, we would run over to that person. And um, uh, before we went to medical school, we were just a regular person. We would run over and say, oh, my God, are you okay? Are you hurt anywhere? What can I do to help you? And in medical school, it's almost like we're taught to run over there and say, on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate your pain? (laughs) 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 Kind of distances us from just communicating with people in a normal way. So I've always felt like these communication courses in med school sometimes... Uh, almost give the message that the way you've communicated with people your entire life isn't isn't right. You have to communicate in a medical way now that's very formal and proscripted. And um, I've gone back to just talking to people the way I would talk to my parents and do away with the medical ease and the formality of it and communicate them on a regular level. And, and, and I suspect that people may open up to me a little bit more because I'm talking to them the same way they're brother or son might talk to them. So for me, Galena, really, I've been driven to medicine because of the storytelling. And then I've really delighted in getting to know people uh, in a really privileged way uh, and communicate with with them about, you know, topics they don't want to talk about, like you've just been given a diagnosis uh, with leukemia, but also topics they delight in talking about, like what is going on with their kids and their grandkids recently. It's really fascinating uh, what you describe and uh, really gives us insight into how how these things are really done, uh, you know, from the perspective of the practitioner. And you provide really, really special uh, sort of view on, on this. I was just wondering, in addition to communications to patients, what do you think about the patient engagement in the research or being a part of the process itself? 
Yeah, there, there's a, it's, it's an insightful question. There's been a real movement about not just patient-focused research, but patient-involved research, uh, and including patients on you know, major committees that help drive research to, to not only remind us of the, the person who's being affected by these studies, but also to give advice on what's important to patients in how we study. So I'll give you a, an example of this. Um, I've been involved in scientific review committees and cancer centers in the U.S., particularly those that have been um, identified as a National Cancer Institute um, designated comprehensive cancer center, like where I practice at uh, the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at University of Miami. Um, Actually, we are required to have a patient on that scientific review committee to give input about the design of trials and the endpoints of those trials. And you see this also with a lot of funded research that comes from patient advocacy groups like the Aplastic Anemia and MDS Foundation or the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the Leukemia Research Foundation uh, in the UK, where patients are actively involved in, in analyzing grants and making sure that they're focused on what's important to patients. And, you know, I had an interesting period when I went through my training, Galena, when I was a fellow, so I, I went through my residency in internal medicine at um, Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and then did my fellowship at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And it was the, the fellowship was very heavily focused on the clinical care of patients during our first of three years. But then during year two and year three, we really were expected to focus on our research. So I spent a year during my second year just focused on the research that I was that I was doing, and and one of my projects then was a study looking at how people make decisions about treatment for leukemia and what their quality of life was like. And I found at the end of the year that um, first of all I thought my research had veered, and, and it wasn't what was important to patients anymore because I wasn't having contact with patients. And secondly, I noticed that I was getting a little bit depressed doing just the research without seeing patients every week and reminding myself of, of why I was doing that research. So I shifted and did something that at the time was a little unusual for a fellow and went back to seeing patients a couple of days a week in clinic full time while I was doing my research uh, and found that my research was better and, and I was a, a, a happier, happier uh, researcher. So getting patients involved in research I think makes that research better. It makes it more honest and certainly more relevant to the needs of patients so that we're studying the right things that are eventually going to improve either the quality of a person's life or the duration of that life. That's an excellent point and really illustrates that researchers, just as patients, are just as enthusiastic to be a part of the process rather than just a passive uh, uh, benefactor of it, really. Oh, absolutely. My word. Um, you know, um, th- there is a scientific appeal to doing research. Um, you know, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to portray myself as, as someone I'm not. I may, I was a biology major undergrad. I, I also minored in English and chemistry. Um, I love the science. Um, I love how with particularly what I specialize in leukemia and related conditions like myelodysplastic syndrome, um, the, the evolution of those diseases is uh, tragic on a human level, 
unfortunately fascinating on a scientific level as we see the acquisition of genetic abnormalities that eventually lead to the manifestation of disease. So the science itself is, is fascinating, but what makes it special um, and what uh, makes it just so, so relevant and real and important is conducting science and conducting research that actually makes a person's life better and seeing that happen. Okay, so just as you said, science is, is really fascinating around this topic. So I was just wondering if we can start like you do in your book in, on uh, a bit of a scientific part. So what is leukemia? Who can develop it? Sure, uh, it's, it's <laughs> one of my favorite topics. Thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> you know, I, we talk about cancer as if it's one diagnosis. And this is something that my dad was a you know really smart guy and he was a reporter so he would really as a child of a reporter i don't know if any of your listeners are are in that um to have that privilege of being a child of a reporter but i i think you grow up with a certain amount of um cynicism because you hear the stories that don't get reported in the newspaper and the and the things that influence reporting um but i also think uh you are um, regularly grilled by your parent about anything that you do as if they're reporting on it for a newspaper. So my dad would say to me, you know, why can't we cure cancer yet? We have all these smart, you know, egghead scientists and doctors working on this. Why can't we cure cancer yet? And so even my dad, a smart reporter who, who thought a lot about questions, asked what I thought was a pretty simplistic question. Why can't we cure cancer? Because cancer is thousands upon thousands of different types of diseases, each like a fingerprint, different from the others. And leukemia is the same way. So leukemia, or what I commonly practice, which is acute leukemia, involves a cell in the bone marrow that's gone bad, and gone bad in a, in a very awful way. It, it, for most people, it involves a cell that has acquired a genetic abnormality that leads it to outgrow every cell around it. And it grows and grows and grows and fills up that space of the bone marrow. Now, if this happened to a cell in the breast, a woman would get a lump because that cell has outgrown other cells around it and causes a lump and the tissue has expanded to accommodate that lump. If it happens in the lungs, a woman or man might get a mass, um, right? A, 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 a ball of growing cells that starts to encroach on other tissue around it and give somebody shortness of breath, or it may invade a blood vessel and cause someone to cough up blood or may encroach on a nerve and cause somebody chest pain from that mass. Um, with leukemia, these cells are expanding in what I call a high rent district. It's the bone marrow. The bones can't expand to accommodate this mass. So the bones just fill up with these cancer cells, these leukemia cells, and as a consequence, the normal bone marrow cells die out. Now, the normal bone marrow cells, their job is to be the factory that makes the cells in our bloodstream. So they make the red blood cells that bring oxygen to our tissues. When those are low, people are anemic. They make the white blood cells. That's our immune system. When that's compromised, people get infections. And they make the platelets that help stop bleeding. So there's a paradox that occurs. You have a bone marrow that's filling up with leukemia cells, with cancer cells, but the normal bone marrow cells are dying out. So as a result, 
somebody's blood counts are low. They come when, when a person with acute leukemia comes to see me, their platelet counts are low and they may have already started to have bleeding episodes, nosebleeds or bleeding from their gums. Their um, red blood cells are low, so they're anemic. When someone's anemic, they get short of breath like the 72-year-old man I started this interview with talking about. So when they walk upstairs or walk up a hill, they have to stop and catch their breath because they red they don't have enough red cells to deliver oxygen to their muscles, to their tissues, or to their lungs. Now the white blood cell count can be very, very high in somebody with acute leukemia because leukemia is essentially a cancer of the white blood cells. That bone marrow is filling up with these leukemia cells and then it leaks out into the bloodstream. So somebody who comes to see me may have a white blood cell count that's 20 times normal. But the, the interesting thing about it, the terrible thing about that is that with a white blood cell count that high, you may, you may think that that must be a superman or superwoman at fighting infections. But these white blood cells are caught in an eternal childhood. They're stuck um, at, a, at a preternaturally immature stage that we call blasts. And therefore, they're completely non-functional. They can't fight infection to save their lives. So people with leukemia also come to me often with infections. And those infections may be life-threatening at the very beginning. So when we talk about someone with acute leukemia, it's a cancer of the bone marrow. It's a cancer that involves immature cells. They're stuck in an eternal childhood. And the only way we can treat it is by giving chemotherapy to undo these cells, to kill these abnormal malignant golems and allow the normal bone marrow cells to grow back. And it all starts with a genetic error that gives a cell a growth advantage compared to other cells around it. And also, and this is also an awful part of this, it renders that cell incapable of the normal body signals that tell a cell to stop growing. So our body has these checks and balances. When it sees a cell go rogue, there are chemicals that are produced by our body that tell that cell to stop growing and it stops it in its tracks. Cancer cells, leukemia cells, not only grow rogue, but they also ignore those signals to tell them to stop growing. And that's how it gets out of control. Oh, this is so much clearer now. Um, I was just wondering, what happens to other uh, blood cells, like red blood cells? Right. So in the, the bone marrow is this factory, right? And imagine some horrible invader has taken over this factory and it's just making its own corrupted cells stuck in their eternal childhood. Imagine a factory that's taken over by kindergartners right? And the kindergartners are just awful. They're breaking machines. They're throwing things on the floor. They're ignoring what their supervisors are telling them to stop doing what they're doing. And they don't know how to make normal red blood cells, platelets, and white blood cells. In the meantime, those normal factory workers who've already graduated from primary and secondary school and are actually making a living and know what they're doing are being forced out of the factory by the kindergartners. So if you imagine a factory taken over by just terrible kindergartners who don't know what they're doing, who are just causing destruction and who kick all the adults out. That's what's happening with leukemia. So those bone marrow cells, those adult cells that know how to make red blood cells and know how to make platelets are no longer in the factory. So they're just simply not being made. 
So who can develop leukemia and other factors such as genetic or environmental known? Uh, that's a fabulous question. You know, the, the, the easy answer to this is, the, is that most of leukemia occurs just out of dumb luck. And, and let me try to explain this. Cancer itself is basically an, an argument of statistics, of mathematical probabilities. It, if, you, if you think to yourself, gee, a, a cell is 99.9% .9 accurate at making a perfect copy of itself. And, and you may remember back to you know, secondary school when um, you saw one of those films. I, I think everyone I've met has seen one of these films of a cell dividing. And it's this video, it shows this cell kind of quivering for a while, then it pinches in the middle and you have two beautiful cells that are made from that one cell. And that's a normal process of mitosis. A cell makes a perfect copy of itself. Let's say it's 99.9% .9 accurate. That means one time out of a thousand, that cell is going to screw up. It's not going to make a perfect copy of itself. It's going to make a cell that is different from the parent cell. Well, most of the time the body recognizes that and it's actually our immune system that plucks those bad cells out and gets rid of them so that they don't cause any harm in the future. But let's say our immune system is 99.9% .9 accurate at plucking out those bad cells. So one time out of a thousand, it's going to let one of them live. Well, again, most of the time, that's just genetic garbage. That cell's going to die on its own because the difference between that cell and its parent cell it is a fatal one and it just dies. It can't survive. But maybe one time out of a thousand, not only does it survive, but it survives better than the other cells around it. And, and that's a cancer cell. So if you think about this as a mathematical argument, Galena, of mathematical probabilities, how long do you think it takes for that one in a thousand event and then a follow-up one in a thousand event and another one in a thousand event to lead to cancer? Well, probably takes six, seven, eight decades, right? That many times a cell has to divide and an immune system has to miss it. And another event has to occur where it's, where it's a cell that's created that has a growth advantage, probably six, seven, eight decades. That's why cancer is far more likely to affect people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s than it is a child or a person in his or her 20s or 30s. So thinking about the mathematical probability of this, that's why it takes six, seven, eight decades um, to see a cancer develop. Um, this isn't something, those sort of mathematical probabilities in general don't happen to people in their 20s and 30s. It takes decades and decades and decades before eventually a cell is produced that has a growth advantage compared to other ones. So most of cancer in general, most of leukemia, like I said, is just dumb luck. It's statistical probabilities. But occasionally, uh, a person is exposed to something in the environment that can lead to the development of something like leukemia. And what is that then? Well, the most common uh, event is someone is treated with radiation therapy or chemotherapy for another cancer. Radiation therapy and chemotherapy damages cells. That's why they're, it's so effective against cancer cells, but it can also damage normal cells. And five, seven years after the successful treatment of a first cancer like breast cancer or lymphoma or other types of cancers, we can see the evolution 
of a, a cancer like leukemia from the damage to the cells themselves. It, it happens uncommonly, but the person um, who first really developed modern radiation therapy um, when he was at Stanford University, um, and, and this was a, 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 a one of the few good consequences of the of the the nuclear chase is that we actually were able to develop the technology to treat uh, cancers with radiation therapy. He himself got very clinically depressed when all of these patients he had treated with um, successfully with radiation therapy for their cancers years later would come back to his clinic with leukemia. Now, in terms of environmental exposures, there really are very few that we've identified that have led to the development of cancers and specifically to leukemia. One in particular that, of course, is notorious are the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, there was a bump in uh, rates of leukemia that was seen uh, uh, within the first three years following exposure uh, to these atomic bombs. Um, I have stories of patients who later develop leukemia uh, where they had these kind of fantastic exposures that I've wondered uh, could have been related to the, the eventual development of their leukemia. One of my patients uh, described how she lived in New Mexico around the time of nuclear bomb testing in the U.S. And when she was a girl, they would post signs up on the telephone poles outside in the town saying, come out tonight, there's going to be a mushroom cloud that we can all watch. Let's come and celebrate. And they'd all go out into the, the streets while an atomic bomb was tested nearby. And she, she described how the winds from that mushroom cloud, from that bomb being exploded would wash over them in the evening, right? It's pretty amazing um, mm -hmm. to speculate whether that decades later could have led to her leukemia. Um, so, you know, there are specific events that have occurred uh, that we can tie to it, but most of this, like I said, is just dumb luck. So how does the treatment look like uh, for leukemia? Of course, it would be very variable, but uh, just in general terms, how would you approach uh, the treatment? So um, leukemia is treated with chemotherapy. And if it's acute leukemia, we, we tend to give very intensive, strong chemotherapy that requires a person to be hospitalized and um, to remain in the hospital for four to six weeks. That person receives chemotherapy over approximately a seven-day period. It is um, like exploding a bomb in the bone marrow. It wipes out the bone marrow. And then we keep that person in the hospital for the uh, remainder of the time uh, until his or her bone marrow recovers, particularly his or her immune system. And that person can then be safe to return to his or her home and uh, have a functional immune system to deal with the exposure to infections as an outpatient. We do have one subtype of leukemia called chronic myeloid leukemia or CML. And um, this is uh, probably the most amazing treatment discovery we've, we've had in cancer is the identification of uh, a compound that can be taken as a pill to treat this chronic myeloid leukemia. And um, the, the story behind this is fascinating. If, 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 you, if you'll indulge me for just a couple of minutes to, to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, chronic myeloid leukemia is one of the first cancers ever associated with a genetic abnormality. And that genetic abnormality is known as the Philadelphia chromosome. 
back in 1962, investigators, uh, last names were, were um, Noel and Hungerford, uh, were working at the University of Pennsylvania and had identified that people with leukemia seemed to have an abnormality in their genetics and their chromosomes. And they used very primitive technology to identify this. And that's why it's known as the Philadelphia chromosome. Actually, what it involves, and this was discovered years later in 1972 by Janet Rowley at the University of Chicago, who's a brilliant, brilliant researcher. Uh, she actually made a couple of seminal discoveries in the genetics of leukemias. And what she found is that it wasn't just a random genetic event, but we all have 23 pairs of chromosomes. Uh, 22 of them we number, 1 through 22, and then we have the sex chromosomes that identify our biologic sex. And those are XX if, if, a, if a person is a woman or XY if a person's a man. And she found that chromosome nine and chromosome 22 traded legs with each other. And that trading legs, that and only that led to the development of chronic myeloid leukemia CML. Now, fast forward years from then, there was a, a a scientist whose name was Brian Drucker. And he actually went to, he did his fellowship the same place that I did at uh, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And he was really intrigued by chronic myeloid leukemia, mainly because it's one of the few cancers where it's a single genetic event that goes wrong that leads directly to that cancer. And he started to screen a bunch of chemicals to see which of them would kill chronic myeloid leukemia cells in a test tube. Um, and he found uh, one that was just particularly effective at doing this. So then there was a mouse model that had been developed with mice that had chronic myeloid leukemia. And he started to give this chemical to these mice. And oh my God, it, it got rid of this chronic myeloid leukemia in the mice. And the mice were fine. They didn't kill the mice. So around this time, he kept applying for funding to support his lab. And um, he couldn't get it. So... Um, he was asked to leave his institution, which is what happens to scientists who can't secure funding. So he landed at that point at Oregon Health Sciences University uh, on the West Coast of the United States. But he had this chemical that really, really worked. And he approached the company that manufactured it and said, hey, let's do a, you know, I've tried this in test tubes. I've tried it in mice. It works so incredibly well. This could be a miracle treatment for people with this leukemia. Let's try it in people. And the, um, the company that made the chemical said, uh, how many people are diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia in the U.S. each year? And he said, yeah, only about 6,000. Now, to put that in context, 220,000 women each year are diagnosed with breast cancer, about the same number of men diagnosed with prostate cancer. So compare 6,000 with 220,000. And the company said, yeah, we'll, we'll never make a profit from that drug. We don't want to do it. But he kept haranguing them and haranguing them to do this. And eventually he said, you know, treatments for breast cancer and prostate cancer usually last for about four to six months at the time. He said, treatment for chronic leukemia is going to be lifelong. So finally, the company capitulated and said, okay, we'll, we'll try it in people. And this led to an early phase study where the remission rate, meaning people, you know, couldn't find the leukemia anymore, was over 90% for this drug. And um, eventually the drug was approved in May of 2001 and has so revolutionized the treatment for chronic leukemia. These folks, when they were young, used to undergo a bone marrow transplant to start with. And now 
uh, it's rare to ever see somebody with chronic myeloid leukemia undergo a bone marrow transplant when they're treated with pills. And a, a recent study, a follow-up study of all these people who enrolled in these trials uh, around the turn of the um, millennium um, actually found that their life expectancy is the same as other people their age who don't have leukemia at all. So in other words, these treatment, these pills have raised people's life expectancy with chronic myeloid leukemia to be the same as people who were never, ever given a diagnosis of leukemia. Talk about miracle drug. You know, it really is. And in fact, it wound up on the cover of Time magazine as the drug of the year. <laughs> Back when it was approved. <laughs> but it really is remarkable. So treatments for um, leukemia can, can, in summary, can run a gamut. You can, it can be as easy as taking a pill every day to having to be hospitalized and receive very intensive chemotherapy. So I'm just wondering, just to round up the science part, uh, what do, how hopeful are you with the novel developments like CRISPR? Uh, do you think the treatments re will really progress as we develop our new technologies? Yeah, there's just a story of uh, CRISPR being injected into people to treat amyloid. Uh, it was just in the news. That is just incredible. Yes, we are getting better and better at identifying the genetics underlying these cancers and identifying specific treatments that target those genetics and make people better. Um, this is the uh, consequence of decades and decades of national funding into the uh, science of uh, treating cancer and understanding its biology. And we are now seeing, uh, if, if I look at US rates of cancer um, compared to uh, 40 years ago, the survival for leukemia has more than doubled. Okay, so let's circle back and uh, refocus on our human uh, stories. Uh, so whose stories are you telling in your book and why? So in When Blood Breaks Down, I tell the story of three patients who arrive at the hospital, each within a day of the others. Um, all of these people, and this is very typical for someone with a new diagnosis who's then sent to a leukemia unit where I practice, they're all told to get their affairs in order when a blood test returns drastically wrong. So I talk about Joan, who's a 48-year-old surgical nurse and mother who comes from the rural town of Worcester, Ohio. David, who's a 68-year-old husband and father. And Sarah, who's 36 years old and pregnant when she's given her diagnosis of leukemia. And, you know, the symptoms of this, it, it, it's really a shock to people. Uh, you know, one of these people randomly thought 24 hours earlier that she was catching a bad cold, one that he was getting older and slowing down, and one that she was exhausted from morning sickness. And they literally go to their primary care doctor or into the emergency room, a blood test comes back, and then an emergency room doctor comes into the place where they're lying in bed, draws the curtains closed, and says to them, you have leukemia. Um, you better think about getting your affairs in order, but let's send you to a specialty center and see what they can do. That's literally what happens. And they arrive to our leukemia unit hours later, having just been told that. And then it's up to these people to make decisions that no person should ever have to make um, that's going to affect their own lives and the lives of those closest to them. So the three patients in this book are actually composites of people I've cared for over the years. And the conversations, the medical twists and turns, 
the aspects of their lives that precede and follow their diagnosis all really occurred. So these are all real stories. The discoveries that, that leads to the treatment options for them, as I've mentioned, are just remarkable. Um, you know, I told you about the story of, of the drug used to treat chronic myeloid leukemia. Uh, I talk in the book about a curative therapy that comes from a root that was discovered in China. Um, and I even talk about experiments in dogs, in beagles, um, that led to the modern miracle of bone marrow transplantation. So um, these folks all are presented with different treatment options and have to make different decisions about their treatment. You know, somebody like Joan, who's 48 years old, young, has, a, has children who haven't uh, graduated high school yet, when offered the uh, option of taking very intensive chemotherapy, says, yes, bring it on. I, I need to be alive to, to, to make sure my kids make it to adulthood. When that same option is presented to David, who's 68 years old, has grown children, has led a good life, he's not as sure that that's what he wants and really has to think through what his, um, what his options are and the fact that he may make a decision that's different than what his kids want for him. So he's got to balance what's right for him with what his kids want him to, to do. And Sarah, who's pregnant at the time of her leukemia, has to make a decision about taking a treatment that you know, may, may actually cause a, a birth defect. Um, and you know, treating you know, what's life-threatening to her right then um, versus, and, and potentially endangering the health of her fetus, of her unborn fetus, with, um, you know, saying no to that treatment and seeing what she can do so that the fetus may not be affected by chemotherapy. So like I said, these are all scenarios, uh, conversations that I've had multiple times. And I, I think what's special about this book is that, um, you know, as a healthcare provider, as a doctor or a nurse or pharmacist or social worker who meets these folks at this critical time in their lives, we're taking this journey with our patients uh, and, and, and walking that walk with them um, as they make these decisions. So why do you think it's important to convey these real human stories to your readers and not just focus on disease, disease itself? It is just such a complicated and special um, an awful thing that my patients go through. Um, like I said, their diagnosis is a complete shock to them. And mm -hmm. for example, we see people go through the Kubler-Ross stages of death and dying in real time because they haven't had time to process it. Somebody who has acute leukemia goes from, you know, healthy and I think I have a cold to here are my risks of dying in the next month. Um, and we see people go through anger, sadness, bargaining, um, ultimately acceptance, we hope, uh, in real time. Sometimes we see it happen over hours. Sometimes people get stuck at one of these stages and, and, and we don't see them head towards eventual acceptance for months afterwards. Um, it's also so relatable to what we've all gone through with COVID-19. Um, we've gone through knowing nothing about a virus to having to learn about it very quickly, make real-time decisions about it. Um, you know, like uh, as someone who's a provider in the hospital, we had to figure out what was safe for us to wear. Um, we had mm -hmm. to listen to a lot of information about at first 
masks aren't important, remember those days, to we have to clean every surface around us because it lives on surfaces, particularly plastics, to we have to not only wear a mask, but, a, but we have to wear an N95 mask, and we have to wear a face shield, and we're not allowed to wear our white coats anymore. And all of this information was changing week by week or month by month. So we didn't know that what we were doing was safe for us or safe for our patients, but we, we did our darndest to figure it out in real time just like my patients have to when they're given a leukemia diagnosis. We, we have to learn with, we had to learn with COVID-19, what were risks, who, who was at greatest risk, who, who we had to protect the most. Um, we had to learn about brand new treatments and vaccines and what their efficacy was and whether or not we could trust them. So this is all very relatable to what we've all just lived through substitute leukemia for COVID-19, and it's the same book. So, of course, it's very, very difficult uh, for patients to be given such a diagnosis and then, as you say, to make decisions uh, just literally on a spot. But now I'm wondering, from your perspective, how do you manage being in such a demanding role, often bearing bad news to people and actually seeing it every day in a practice? Um, well, that is, you know, if I'm at the, the rare time when, when, remember when we used to go to dinner parties and actually see people? So at a dinner, uh. <laughs> a dinner party, you know, it's, um, it, it's kind of one of those showstoppers when someone asks me what I do and I say leukemia, and then there's kind of an awkward silence afterwards. But in reality, it's, I mean, just like when I was a fellow and went this period without seeing patients and then went back to seeing patients, I'm buoyed by um, by my patients, um, by their spirit, um, by the way they, they have display utter humanity in the face of a, a treasonous bone marrow that's turned on them, um, by their resiliency. We, we read so much about resiliency, um, in, uh, online or, or in newspapers, uh, and, and my patients show the ultimate of resiliency. And I also get to see them at one of the most special times in their lives. And it's special with, with both, you know, uh, both meanings of that word. It's special because it's specially awful that they're given a life-threatening diagnosis. And it's special because it's a moment in time when my patients reassess what's important to them. And you know what? It's not having to deal with the traffic in Miami. It's not um, the fact that a, a, the coffee maker in the waiting area isn't working that day. Um, it's that they get to spend time with their family, their friends, that they get to appreciate just being with other people. And these wind up being the most special people in the entire world. And I look at it as, you know, I'm often not the one giving them a diagnosis. I'm the one who gets to meet them after they've been given their diagnosis and say, okay, here's what we're going to do about this and give them options for, for what they want to do to treat their leukemia. And then I get to go on this journey with them. And it is, you know, it's almost become trite to say this, but, but I promise you it is so true. It is an absolute privilege to be invited into these patients' lives, to go on this journey with them, and then hopefully to walk with them towards a cure, but sometimes to walk with them towards making decisions at the end of their lives. Um, and these are just such exquisitely special people that for me, it's, 
you know, how many professions do you get to, do you get to do where you get to meet people like this at, at such a special time in their lives? Yes, for sure. It's such a privilege and so really great to hear. And also we still should uh, be able to support all of our medical staff just in case they need uh, some help, for example, to maintain them, their, their mental health. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and we certainly saw this during COVID-19, right? Mm. I think it was the ultimate display of resiliency versus not. There are um, very close friends of mine and colleagues who, you know, viewed COVID-19 and said, what a terrible, awful thing. But you know what? Let's figure out what we can do to, to learn about it and to fix it um, and to study it. And those people just thrived during the year because it was almost like an opportunity to do something they'd never done before and to be part of something that we will only see hopefully once in our lifetime and other people who just said oh my god this is just awful and unbearable and crumbled and folded in on themselves um and are trying to dig out of that so again some of the very same themes that we that, that i see all the time in people who who are given a, a diagnosis like leukemia Okay, so I was just wondering what questions are still keeping you up at night and what gets you out of the bed in the morning? <laughs> um, well, until we are able to cure 100% of people with leukemia, I'm getting out of the bed every single morning to try to get us closer there. Um, so I oh, ongoing have questions about the best treatments we can offer people about um, better defining the biology of leukemia so we, we know what to target better and better about using new technologies like bone marrow transplant, CAR T-cell, CRISPR technology to try to, to get us more to 100% cure rate, to identifying the epidemiology of these diseases so we can prevent it from happening in the next generation of people, um, to understanding my patient's journey better and better so I can try to make it better for them. Um, Oh my word, uh, Galena, it's, it's a wonder that I stay in bed at all. There are so many questions that I still want to answer. And I was just me. about to say, do you sleep at all? That's not well. <laughs> but that's the God's honest truth. That's, that's what gets me up every morning. And, and to see my patients, it, it, they, it re they really are motivating. Yeah, that's really great to hear. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I was just wondering whether you can tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Um, so great question. I continue to write essays for a variety of venues. Um, I uh, uh, just had a piece that came out in salon.com on um, how uh, some of my colleagues have been reluctant to return from uh, virtual appointments to seeing patients live again because they themselves still have fears about COVID-19. It's, it's, it's really fascinating how this has pervaded everyone. Um, I had a piece that just came out in Huffington Post about my relationship with my best friend and how we try to be better dads. And um, I've uh, written a new book uh, that'll come out next year where I explore the history of the US FDA and how that history informs uh, decisions that they make about a variety of drugs, but particularly about cancer drugs. Um, and uh, it's really a remarkable, remarkable stories about what's led to uh, how the FDA works and major legislative changes. 
That sounds super interesting. I hope you come to talk to us about your new book next year. I would be thrilled to. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also uh, your book, When Blood Breaks Down? So When Blood Breaks Down is available on uh, at major booksellers, um, Barnes & Noble, Barnes and Noble, Amazon.com, and particularly independent booksellers. Please support independent booksellers. Um, it can be found at, uh, uh, through the MIT Press. That's my publisher. And uh, a lot of my essays can be found uh, if you just uh, uh, search my name on an engine like Google. And um, uh, I have uh, about 60 pieces that have appeared in the New York Times, as well as, as I've mentioned, uh, Huffington Post, uh, The Hill, Salon.com, and a variety of other sites. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really insightful discussion. Thanks so much for the opportunity. 